Welcome back to Gold Shields. This is Dan Murphy, along with my partner in crime, Tom Smith. Every week we bring you the best, most compelling true crime directly from the mouths of the detectives and investigators who made the cases, plus special episodes featuring people who are members of law enforcement, former members, those who support law enforcement, those who chronicle it, those who lead it. We've had some amazing guests. We've been very blessed, and the show has been taking off, and we have a lot of people who are supporting us. And um, my partner in crime, Tom, will tell you about a couple of those, and we're very excited about today's guest. We'll get into that in just a minute. Tom, we have so many great affiliations, and our listenership is growing all the time. Tell me about some of the stuff you've been hearing from people recently. Yeah, you know what? We're just, and we sound like a broken record sometimes, Dan, that we're so fortunate, and uh, the way this is going is better than we ever thought uh, and thankful. And we don't have a show without the audience, our followers, our listeners, people already subscribing to our YouTube channel, which is. Uh, youtube.com at gold shields slash at gold shields you can hit the subscribe button right now and get on that and that has already been taken off and we haven't even you know put our first show on there yet and we're already getting subscribers which is amazing uh i just got an email today that another uh podcast platform picked our show up uh bullhorn.fm sent us an email that they picked up the show on their platforms uh, so that's what I mean. It's just out there. It's it's successful, and we're humbled every day by the companies that are involved with us, the affiliations we have, the people we're meeting. I think Dan, you can say the same thing. Are more important than all of this. The friendships yeah. that we're developing, absolutely, is just uh, off the chart. We can't thank everyone enough. And we have learned so much about the world that's out there that supports the men and women of law enforcement, the various organizations, the nonprofits, etc. We've gotten to know the leaders of them, and they are remarkable people. And we want to use this show as a platform to talk about them. You know, Tom, I, I told you already, I had an incredible experience yesterday. I was honored to be asked to be the keynote speaker at an event run by Convergent Technologies at Children's Mercy Field, which is the professional soccer field in Kansas City, Kansas. And yesterday morning, I spoke there to about 100 people, mostly from the secu security professionals, a couple of law enforcement professionals. But after I got done speaking, I was so impressed. I, I was blown away and humbled. At least five people came up to me and said, I've been listening to your show. As soon as I found out that you were speaking here and I saw that you co-hosted that podcast, I started listening and it was so good. I, I was I was really humbled. You know, it, it's Tom and I are not the kind of people to wave our own flag, and we're not trying. It's not about us. It's about the guests and the content. So I really appreciated that, and it was very humbling and very nice to see, as well as some of our other uh, associations that we have. Like, for example, uh, now a friend, Elon, the CEO of Igard Watches, who make the Thin Blue Line watch, and they donate a portion of that to Concerns of Police Survivors, uh, organizations like that. Uh, we have just so many people. I, I can't even keep track of all the organizations that we become affiliated with and associated with and who we want to use our platform to show support for. But Tom, you have some of them on the tip of your tongue because you speak to them all the time. Yeah. Uh, the hero company and, and Marshall Morris is an amazing company, amazing group of people. And, and Mar he's so great. Marshall's the best. Uh, and what the hero company does is on top of a great, company with their merchandise with their wristband which i have on here uh 
you know, hats, shirts, everything they have is amazing. But even more important and their mission is their proceeds go towards service dogs, which we all know in this world, in this life with PTSD and struggles that veterans have and, and law enforcement and first responders have, the comfort of a dog is another level of support. And Marshall and the Hero Company do everything for that cause. So make sure theherocompany.com, you go on it, support them, buy some stuff. Uh, It goes right towards service dogs for uh, vets and first responders, which we've done enough shows, Dan, with the effects of PTSD and the effects of anxiety and depression and all that, that this is a no-brainer for people to go on this company. And they are very close to us. And you'll hear more about them uh, as we go. But, you know, once in a while, Dan, we we sometimes avoid listing all the companies because we don't want to forget someone. Right. Uh, because, you know, like you said, we're fortunate enough to have so many that are involved with the show. And we just blanket thank them all, you know, for what they're doing for us. Yep. And it's been it's been an amazing ride. And, um, you know, we, we want to focus today on our guests. Uh, so anybody we haven't mentioned this morning, whether it be Wounded Blue or Concerns of Police Survivors, there's just so many. You're all very dear to us and you're all on our website and we will mention you as we can. But um, we don't want our guests to get bored and leave. Um, she's uh, <laughs> she's waiting patiently in the green room. And uh, I'll let Tom introduce her. We're very honored to have her today. She'll be an inspiration for many listeners. Oh, yeah. And, you know, when we set up July and having these uh, successful, powerful, influential women as special shows, uh, Bridget uh, Trixillo popped right in. Uh, She was highly recommended by a dear friend of ours, Patty Fitzgibbons, who runs CJ Evolution. Uh, It's only the number one you know, criminal justice podcast in the country. That's all. I don't want to give Patty too much credit, but we'll give him a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And Bridget goes along with what we wanted to bring out this month with just successful, powerful women in law enforcement, involved in law enforcement. And she is no joke. She's going to get bad at me, but she is one bad ass chick. Okay. And she is. And uh, we're happy to have her here. A, uh, she was a deputy sheriff in Alachua County in Florida. Uh, Took some practice to get that right, Tom. I know. Took some I, practice I, to get that right. It's not Alachua. She, she's going to, she's <laughs> going to correct me in a minute. Yeah. <laughs> uh, she was on patrol, uh, narcotics, organized crime investigations, and then broke through a ceiling and became the first female SWAT operator in that department, which is no joke. Dan and I have worked with SWAT teams, emergency service units, and they are held in a very high regard. It is not an easy job and it's not easy to, to get on that team just in general, much less being the first female to do so. And, and Bridget's going to go into that. So without any further delay, we are proud and honored to have Bridget Trixillo on the show. Bridget, how are you? I'm doing great, guys. Thanks for having me. I've been really looking forward to this. Well, thank you for, well, thank for you. being being part of Gold Shields. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, you are an inspiration, and I, and I really want to to stress that. 
breaking a ceiling like that is no small task, but you've gone further than that in your career and you are, you continue to serve and help the men and women of law enforcement. But tell us about a little bit about you, where you're from, where you were born, how you came to be a deputy sheriff. Uh, thank you. Um, so I've said, I say that I'm kind of from the South, um, because I was born in Louisiana, uh, North Louisiana near Shreveport. My parents are both from very small towns, Shreveport, Ruston area. Um, and then I hated high school, so I got as far away as I could. So went to the University of Florida for college. I didn't know a single person at a 50,000 person school, which is what I wanted. Um, and I guess you could say it kind of started early where I, I'm just not a, but I didn't, I was okay with that. That didn't scare me. And also because I had, I moved around a lot growing up. So backing up a bit, I was born in Louisiana. Second grade, we moved to Missouri. Third grade, we moved to Oklahoma. Fourth grade, we moved to, but before I even finished third grade, we moved to Arkansas and then we moved back to Louisiana in, I think, eighth grade. And then, then went to University of Florida for college. So I moved around a lot. And so leaving what you know wasn't a concern for me, I guess you could say. Um, went to University of Florida. Um, took my time, I guess, a, a little bit because in my fourth year of engineering, I quit school. Um, my dad didn't talk to me for almost a year. And I worked two jobs and I went to New Zealand by myself um, for a month. It was fantastic. And then came back, got a job, finished the stupid degree, as I called it back then. And then the week after I graduated in Florida, I went to the police academy. Um, somewhere in that last semester, I realized I didn't really want to do what my degree was, which is horticulture. And there's a long story about how that came about. Um, but didn't want to do that. And um, I joke around and say that I watched G.I. Jane and thought that was cool. So figured I could <laughs> shave my head and... <laughs> be a Navy SEAL. Mm -hmm. Just kidding. No disrespect to any Navy SEALs out there. Um, but I wanted a job that required me to be fit because I was, you know, I worked out and I thought, well, what if I can't do this as I get older? Well, I'm you know, okay, well, what if I have a job that requires me to be fit? Well, you and I, we all know that get into law enforcement and you don't actually have to be fit. I mean, we've all worked with men and women that are not in shape. Um, and I thought I wanted to do federal law enforcement. So FBI, DEA, something like that. And thought that we go, joining the sheriff's office would get me there. Um, but part of nobody in my family had ever been in law enforcement ever. Um, and combined with, I wanted something that required physical fitness. I wanted a job that mattered. I wanted a job. It, I, I, being in the military was an option for me. Uh, I didn't really want to do the military, but something that had honor in it, something that had bravery in it, something that I think matters. I'm a real dork when it comes to, like, I love that our country is unique in the way that it's structured the, the Constitution. And I believe in the, I believe in the rule of law. And I believe that you need people who are willing to fight to, to enforce that and protect you. And I, there's a lot of honor in that. And so, um, you know, part of me, Think, you know, growing up thinking, well, who that whole imposterism thing, you know, like, well, who do you think you are to be the person that can go out there and protect people? And then the other side of me is like, why the heck not? I know, of course, that could be me. Um, and of course, my dad thought it was absolutely nuts. Um, he did not, he had, he got over the New Zealand thing and my dad and I are very close, but, um, 
Yeah, the week after I finished uh, graduating with my degree in Bachelor of Science, I went to the police academy so that I could be a cop and hopefully be, you know, a, a federal cop someday. Um, but that's how I ended up in law enforcement. So you started out at the Alachua? Alachua County Sheriff's, Sheriff's Office. When I, when I was, um, yes, Alachua. Did I get it right? <laughs> <laughs> when, uh, you know, because I said nobody in my family had ever been in law enforcement before. I knew that that was a world that I had no idea what it was like. And I, had, I was working at a health club and one of the supervisors there at the Gainesville Health and Fitness Center, which is not your normal gym. They create leaders in the people that work there, which is I and the person I am today, partially because of the supervisor I had at the Gainesville Health and Fitness Center um, who taught. Like I became a supervisor there and each week we would have supervisor meetings and we would be studying chapters of seven habits of highly effective people or one minute manager by Ken Blanchard. I mean, I just, I mean, there's books up here. I'm sure that I'm not but definitely seven habits of highly effective people that I started studying in my early twenties. And you know, we talked about integrity earlier. I mean, that's, you know, being proactive, having integrity, doing what, you know, doing what you know is right when nobody's looking. I mean, that, that became, I think I've had, I think you have that integrated in you anyway. And I just think that when you have a mentor that teaches you that at an early age, I mean, they, we would do things like we would have supervisor meetings, group and individual. And, you know, this is at a gym. I mean, but we would sit down and he would, we would, we would be talking about something. And I would say, I remember one time, like, oh, that makes me so mad. And he goes, nope, nobody makes you mad. I was like, no, they do. Like, you know, this guy did this thing. I was like, and that made me mad. He goes, no, 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 no. That guy didn't make you mad. You decided to be mad. And I was like, wait, what? Like, no, you're the one that decides how you handle things. And I was like, dadgummit. No, I'm happy too. <laughs> so, but it, that is like, that was heavy and big. And yeah. I would say, you know, I'm, you know, 25 years later, I still work on that, that I, you know, one of the things he taught me too is you have to take responsibility for the question you asked him. What do you, because I think I told him like I, somebody asked a question, I got mad at the answer. He says, you can't get mad at the answer. It was your question. And like, wow. Okay. So that, you know, that's, that's a two way street. If you ask me a question, be, take responsibility for the answer. And I mean, just things like that in your twenties. And so it was really foundational. Um, Total sidebar on what we were talking about because I love. No, that's about. okay. It's your, it, it's oh. interesting. It's your career oh. and uh, leadership and but, the principles but, but, of you know, success. I did that when I was in college. So to go from that and have that amazing leadership and mentorship, and then go into law enforcement, which is why I started that. Which I'll get back to how I got into law. Well, Alachua County, but that was like a slap in the face. So you go for I have like the most amazing management ever, and we all know. Most law enforcement off agencies do not have good leadership and good management. And, and it's nobody gets, no, nobody teaches them that. So that was a hard transition actually for years to say like, but this is not how it's supposed to be. This is not how you're supposed to manage people. This is not how you're supposed to lead people. Like somebody should teach you this. I had the worst supervisor in the narcotics unit and he was also on SWAT team and that, I mean, all of that combined which has helped me decide to leave law enforcement. But my point being, I was at this gym, one of my, the ladies running things, her husband was a lieutenant at the sheriff's office. I was considering doing it. I had a call with him and he's like, well, what you should do is do a ride along because you have, you really don't have any idea what this is like. I'm like, you're right. So I did a couple of ride alongs, you know, at, at the night shift and 
just those two ride-alongs. I mean, I'll never forget we went on a domestic violence call and it was a black couple. And I remember we walked up and they were both mad. You know, you have to figure out because there's his side, her side, and somewhere in the middle is the truth. But never, you know, just never having seen any of that, never had to experience domestic violence in my life, never seeing it, never, you know, whatever. Um, the guy had like white streaks on his face and I'm like, Oh, what is that? And then we'll walk up to him and realize that his wife had scratched him so deeply on his face that it scratched the color off and was at like the subcutaneous white fat layer. I was like, Oh my God. Anyway, they both ended up getting arrested because it was a two way street. And that's how it is in Florida. Like you, if anybody hits anybody in domestic abuse, you get your arrest both parties. And so but that, that, that hit me heavy. And like, Oh my gosh, this is real. Like, this is violence. This is, and you know, I, I, thankfully there were no active shooter things when I did a ride along, but it was enough for me to know, like I thinking you always go into it thinking, Oh, I'm going to this with eyes wide open. I got this. I'll be fine. Says every rookie. And so you, know, you go in and then you start to see the shit. Sorry. And then you see dead people and you see the kids that get hurt and the filth that they live in. I mean, that was one of the things that bothered me the most, especially when I was in narcotics. We'd be going to these homes and they'd be selling crack and making crack and, you know, kids are running around. I mean, searching these homes when we get search warrants and there's roaches and filth everywhere that these kids are growing up in. And just and you're thinking like these kids just have no chance and it's heartbreaking because they didn't, you know, kids don't ask for that. So... But yeah, so I, I did the ride-alongs thinking, I'll do this. Well, then, because I, right around that time, the guy who, who was running HR, a lieutenant, who ended up becoming captain of the patrol later, he was the one who was responsible for getting me on SWAT team because, as my SWAT commander told me, he never would have put me on the team if it was up to him. Um, he was my champion. He was trying to focus on getting more officers with college degrees. And so I lucked out literally on the timing because I met with him. I had just graduated. He was trying to get more college graduates and offered to pay me in the academy, which is, I think that's what they do in NYPD, right? You get, you yes. paid, you get a low salary while you're in the academy, but they weren't doing that. And so I was sort of like a test case. Um, and I got paid not like, I don't even know what it was, but I know that I got a raise when I got into patrol and my salary when I got into patrol was $27,500 a year. So I was still happy that I was getting paid in the academy and not being just completely broke. Um, but they paid me in the academy, of course, took the test and then, you know, then started FTO. So um, still, you know, total rookie little white girl grew up in suburbia. America with no <laughs> troubles, you know, like yeah. I had food on my table. I had parents who loved me. I had, you know, just so many things I had never seen or experienced. So obviously, as we all know, I got to see lots of other ways that the world lives. That's an, it's an interesting, the job of law. interesting observation because I don't care where you're from. It doesn't matter if you're born in an area and grew up in an area that has a share of crime. When you become a police officer and you work in an area that's even remotely busy, and even in slower areas, you're going to see things you've never seen before. And you're going to be confronted with the reality of life that most people drive right by, walk right by, and have no concept exists in their community. And that's what you're dealing with because nobody's calling 911 to invite you to their kid's graduation party. They're calling 911 because somebody stuck a knife in Uncle Henry during the kid's graduation party. 
or, or, or somebody, you know, drove their car through a window. There's, you're getting called to the worst situations all the time. Uh, so that's, it's an eye opener. It really is. And a, a bit of a bubble bursts, a bit of your innocence is lost because now you, you can say you've seen reality. And most of us don't in our lives. Uh, cops do though. Boy, we get confronted with it and it's not just a little bit. <laughs> it's a daily dose, right? And so it, it, it toughens, it toughens a lot of people and it turns a lot of people off. Plenty of people leave it because they don't want to do that every day, all day. Um, but Certainly you stayed- one of my biggest challenges, I feel like people, I feel like it hits you somewhere between three and five years. Um, the evil that you face, the way that you have to try and balance assuming people want to hurt you all the time and not completely lose who you are as a good human. That I, when I, about the time I was leaving, I was really struggling with that part. Um, and I, I think that's just a, a, a very strong wellness routine helps deal with that and help keep you in touch with who you want to be as a person, but it takes proactive effort. But yeah, I think that it, no matter what, it changes you as, as you know. Um, yeah. Yep. And so you know you, what? You, you get, you had a great story with, uh, working at the gym and, and hearing a certain, you know, uh, method of, of, understanding and, and preparation for things and organization. And I firmly believe, you know, things you learn throughout your life just make you a better cop once you get on the job because you learn so much and then you get on the job and you, and you see and feel that it's compatible. You know, there's things you learned in your life that you can transition into being a cop and, and you understanding that and grasping that I'm sure helped you. Uh, I'm sure that mindset made you you know, stronger or compartmentalizing certain things to, to make it better, uh, was definitely a plus in your career. Uh, I mean, you go from patrol and then, you know, is it, Hey, I want to move around. I want to, I want to do some different things. So then, you know, narcotics comes into it. We're not even, we're going to save the SWAT thing for a minute because that's huge, but there's a couple other units you get into, uh, while you're there. So take us through that and that, thought process of what drew you to narcotics, which Dan and I both were in and organized crime and everything. So we understand the draw of that. Uh, how was it for you? Um, I looked at it as like a resume, help, a resume builder. At, I mean, honestly, I want, I think, like I said, I wanted, I was interested in FBI or DEA. Also, that's only like, I thought, oh, those are the two law federal law enforcement arms. We're really once I got into narcotics and we worked with lots of different type of federal investigators, you learned that there are, there is a, a, an investigative law enforcement arm in the federal, at the federal level in so many different departments. But what I, anyway, so I thought, well, if I get into the narcotics unit because they had an opening and they also didn't have a female. So I, I knew that there would be value in that um, and having me on the team or that, and that even though I had less than a year on that I had a chance of getting it because they needed a female so, you know, it was strategic. Um, and in hindsight, I'm not one that likes to sit around and be patient. <laughs> so, you know, I jump into this role, which I, I had this conversation on a different podcast not too long ago talking about how, I mean, yes, there, there is value in getting more experience 
even in just patrol before you move into something narcotics. But then also, if you're going to do undercover narcotics in somewhere that's not as big as NYPD, where people might get to see your face more often, it's smart it's smarter to do that earlier rather than later. So nobody had really seen my face a lot because of being in patrol. So I went in and could do, you know, go buy crack for a living for three years, which is like what I did. So I interviewed for that and I got it. Um, I can't remember. It wasn't that long. Maybe couple months between when I interviewed and they, I know they put, I started in, I think November. So I got out of the Academy in September and I did three months of FTO. I remember my very first day on my own out of training was New Year's day. And I have a, I could tell a story about that, but, um, it's my very first call, my very first call by myself in my own patrol car on my own was shots fired to an occupied home and the shooters on site. And I was five minutes away because I'm really good with, I'm really good with directions. Like that was not a problem that I had on in training was, you know, do you know where you're going? Like, yes, I know where I'm going. Like, like, let me go. Um, I was five minutes away and my backup was probably at least 10 minutes away. Um, thankfully when I got there, the shooter was gone, but you talk about pucker factor in that <laughs> five yep. minutes thinking, holy shyster. Um, nobody was hurt either, which was great. But, uh, anyway, so less than 12 months in patrol on my own. And then I switched the narcotics unit, um, so that I could ultimately be more marketable for a federal law enforcement job later is why I did that. So you get, you get assigned to the narcotics division. This is during the heyday of crack, or at least there's plenty of it out there. Um, we dealt with crack and crack is crazy. It makes people crazy for the next high and the high doesn't last long. So they're out looking for it constantly. So it causes a lot of robbing and stealing and larceny and every other thing that can be done. But you jumped into the world of undercover in that world. Tell me, what was it like? Um, was it mostly street sales? Did you do any inside buys? Um, tell me about that. Tell us about that. Well, again, and I'll, I'll be honest with you, I, I, I've never done a drug in my life. I had never smoked pot. I had, when I got to the narcotics unit, I mean, I had never even really seen, I mean, I went to college, so I saw it, but I never did it. Went through all of college, never smoked weed, never tried any other kind of drug. And here I am, first day in <laughs> narcotics unit with my pink life is good t-shirt. And I had cut my hair up short, <laughs> so I had this short, curly red, healthy looking hair. I had all yeah. my teeth. Not, they're yeah. not rotting black from the top down. You've seen that, I'm sure. It's so gross. And I don't stink, you know, so, uh, but I always, sometimes people would say, why are you doing this? You look like you're, I'm like, I'm not a cop. Like, you have to tell me if you're a cop. I'm like, yeah, stop watching TV. I love no, that. Yeah. <laughs> I love I used ask. to love that. Yeah. You have to tell me. Like, um, okay, no, I'm not a cop. And then I we would bust them and I would walk into the room later. I'm like, man. And they would just hang their head. And I'm like, hey, that's so. Uh, that's why I say that's why they call it dope because the people who sell it are just dope. It's, like, it's not nice. To, it's not nice to human beings, but drug dealers are not always the best people. So, no. anyway, um, first day on the yard, like, okay, let's go, let's go. You can go buy some crack. I'm like, wait, like today? And like, yeah, let's go. So they get me, you know, undercover car. I have my pink. I'm not kidding you. Pink life is good T-shirt, and we drive up, and I'm like. Okay, can I, uh, I'm probably sounded something like this. Um, could I have one rock, please? Where's <laughs> <laughs> my $20? You know, I, yeah, and so I just spent, yeah, so, so I would do street buys. I would, 
do under you know in-house buys we would do what we called buy walks um we would buy walks if i was doing like in-house so at our our jurisdiction we had to have three buys inside of a house before we could get a search warrant and so a lot of times that was me if we had a snitch i would use the snitch sorry they're supposed to be called confidential informants or a no, no 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 <laughs> snitch Snitch works. Snitch so is good. Snitch, we would use a snitch. If not, and obviously, if they could get us in, that was even better because we're better affiants than they are. And affiant meaning the person on the the swears you, to it. What you use to get the search warrant, where I'm swearing and attesting to the truth of this. So anyway, um, I would either or buy bus where we would go in and buy in the neighborhood, and I'd give the call like, "Okay, looks good," and then I'd drive off, and then the uniform guys would swoop in and arrest them right then. You know, those would be like we would just try and like you know make a big show of cleaning up a neighborhood, and they put it in the news that we cleaned up the neighborhood and arrested twelve people in one night. You know, but the other most of the time it was the buy walks and preparing for a search. Well, not always. I mean, we would. I don't know how often we would do the buy bus, but a lot of times it was the the undercover in-house buys and, you know, and then I would be the one writing the search warrant if it was my snitch or my buys, um, you know, which we did a lot and then hand it over to the SWAT team. The way we did it is we'd hand it over to the SWAT team to execute the search warrant, secure the structures. And then we would come in in narcotics and then search the home and investigate and arrest and all that. Mm-hmm. So you, you wore a gun, of course, because you're a cop unless some I've seen undercovers go out without one for, for a variety of reasons, but you wore a gun. Did you ever get searched? Thank goodness, no. But at first, I started with an ankle holster, uh, a six. I think it was a six-shot revolver. But you know, those are they're thick. Yep. And oh yeah. I think one time. First of all, I don't think it makes sense to wear jeans in the summer in Florida, and so and they and they mm-hmm. wouldn't let us wear shorts. It was so stupid. Like really, if you want to blend in as a, you know, whatever. Not all drug yeah. addicts wear jeans, but, um, so I think it was one time I was about, I almost got a pat down and I had my ankle holster and I very quickly went and bought a Keltec P380, which fits inside your waistband and it's, you know, real thin. So I never wore that ankle holster again. Cause I wish I could remember, cause it's really, you're reminding me of this now, but even just, I can like. I can get like the the body sensations of that, like, oh shit, someone's about to search me. And I, right. like, what am I going to say? What am I going to say? They're, oh my God. And they don't, and I'm not stupid enough and never was stupid enough to think that I would win a fight against a dude. Like, I just wouldn't. And so, and we didn't do jujitsu back then. I mean, maybe if I had take years of jujitsu, I could protect myself and get away, but I was not stupid enough to think, Oh my God, I, I have to fight my way. I mean, I'm like, I might die right now. So I never did, never wore that ankle holster again. I think I still have the gun somewhere, but. You know, there's a whole, there's a whole bunch of training that the NYPD and other agencies do for undercover specifically on how to converse with, with drug dealers, whether it be street level, because a lot of them are just user junkies selling to get their own fixes up to mid-level people all the way up to top level neighborhood or area dealers. Um, and a lot of it has to do with having a different persona, acting in a way that's believable for whatever role you're trying to play. You can, you can be trying to play somebody who wants to buy, you know, a big eight and take it back and cook crack and make and sell it in their area or somebody who wants to just use. So you've got to adopt a bit of a persona. You got to have a bit of a cover story. You got to always be, it's an acting job, really. 
an acting job with very high stakes, though. So personal protection, safety, there are lines you can't allow to be crossed. There are things you cannot do. Do not front the money, right? Don't let that money walk away. You're never going to see it again. Hate to say this to the, to the listeners who don't aren't never worked in the narcotics division. One time she's telling me she did it. Uh, every undercover probably has that initial early stage moment where they go. To my, to my credit, it was one time it was only 20 bucks. But I yeah. came back and I looked at it. It was like, what were you thinking? I was like, because believe it or not, drug dealers are not the most honorable people. No. They will take advantage of you, which is a shock. I know, right? Because they're ordinarily so stand up. But um, yeah. it takes a lot. It takes a lot of cojones, as we say in Ireland, to go in and be an undercover. It really does. And I always gave credit to the guys and girls that did it that I work with. And I I did a variety of things. And I actually did an undercover role in, 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 on a bigger level and something else. But to do street-level stuff on a day-in-day basis day-to-day basis in areas that are filled with crime, filled with drugs. It's a very dangerous choice. And I can tell you, as backup teams, Tom and I, we took the, our role extremely seriously. Our undercover was, was, you know, we want them to know we are like lightning on you if something happens. And you just got to be communicative and we will be there. Um, and it's gone bad. It's gone bad in a lot of times. We've had... Uh, all across the country, undercover's been killed during drug operations. So um, I give you so much credit for doing that. It takes a lot. And once you're out there, you talked about that pucker feeling earlier. There's a lot of undercover pucker feelings, man. And and even the best of them will come back at times after the buy, come back to the barn, as we call it. And they'd be like, Phew. like, wow, that, you know, that must went really bad, really quick. Um, well, you know, that spiny tingly sense we talk about, you know, like something. And so there was, there was one time where I called it off a buy. I was supposed to go into the mobile home and the snitch, she was skittish anyway. And we were buying oxycodone, which we, you know, this, we were buying it. We were thinking that she was getting it from a guy who had already conducted at least two and he was out on bond or whatever for two armed robberies of pharmacies for oxycotton, oxycodone. And we were hoping to buy from him because of course that would enhance his charges anyway. And then we could really hopefully put him away. And it, all of a sudden she called, I still, it's funny you talk about this stuff. Like I'm getting the chills just telling the story. Like something wasn't right. And we, I thought it was just going to be her. And then all of a sudden she's like, well, he's here. And I'm like, he, he who? And she, and she wouldn't really talk about it. It's like, well, when you get here, just come in the room and he'll come out of the bedroom. I'm like, come out. Wait, what? Like, and I called my sergeant. I said, sergeant, I'm not doing it. Like, I don't know what's happening. I don't feel good about this. If this is this guy and he has a shotgun, he's not afraid to put it in people's faces. Like I'm not, he's like, Oh, it's up to you. I said, I'm not doing it. And they were very supportive of that. Um, thankfully. And, and, I can't imagine. I mean, I wouldn't have stayed in the narcotics unit had they not been supportive of that type of decision. Um, and you know, there's other times where you're buying drugs. I got another one way out in the country, so couldn't backup couldn't be that close because it would be too obvious. And I was buying. I don't know if it was crack or powder um, next to this big black dude that had a rifle. I mean, arms reach, leaning up in the corner right next to him. So. You know, in a heartbeat, that could have been over for me. And I was very aware of that. Um, and I can tell a follow-up story to that on the SWAT side later because it was I did the buys. So I wrote the search warrant. I got it. And then we executed it later. And then I can tell a real crap story at the end of it when we talk about the SWAT stuff. Okay. <laughs> cool. I love that. 
And you know awesome. what? You 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 laid it out so well uh, with the way narcotics teams work. And you know, it's not TV. It's not the movies. Uh, it's scary as hell. And you know, Dan and I, like Dan just said, sitting in a car as a backup team, a couple blocks away, was the worst feeling in the world. Because you guys, as the undercover, could control what you're doing and what's going on. We just had to sit there. And listening to it made it worse, you know, on a, on a recorder or the Kel that we called it made it worse because you couldn't do anything, you know, and we always had, you know, like there's lingo going on or like, I remember thinking like, I can't hear what's happening. Like if he says the the word that we need to right. know, like, you're just like, okay, did he say the word? Did he say the yeah. word? Like, I can't understand anything else, but hopefully I can hear Hopefully he enunciates the word. Like, I remember right. one time. You know, on the phone with my sister and, and I talked to her for a second because I, I wasn't like we had lots of backup. I wasn't running the backup scenario, but all of a sudden something happened. I was like, I got to go by. And I hung up. Like I thought something was, I was like, hey, okay. I talked to my sister the next day and she said, Bridget, don't ever do that to me again. Yeah. <laughs> you are in undercover narcotics. Don't ever do that to me. Just don't call me when you're working. I'm like, okay, I'm sorry. You're right. <laughs> Everything was fine. But it's that. Yeah, and it's that quick. It's a absolute millisecond that you know a controlled situation goes extremely bad, and the worst case scenario happens. Uh, and you you came up with a great point too. We always had an agreement with our undercovers and and my team on in narcotics. We had two of the best guys in the world. I mean, they were so good and talented. But we left it to them. You don't like something? We'll do it another day. You know, and you guys as undercovers, and you just explained it. You have a completely different sixth, seventh, eighth sense of something that's going on, and we relied on on them. You don't like it. There's no case worth your safety or anything going wrong. We'll figure it out another day. Right. And, and that's great. You had the backing of your team uh, that they enabled you to make those calls like that because that's that's critical. That's really important in narcotics. Yeah, it's rare that you see an undercover, at least where I worked, uh, that you see an undercover back out of a case or, or a buy or yeah. something like that. that was the only it, time. Yeah. But when it does happen, it's 100% supported because it's, it's part of the deal. Nobody can force you to go in and make a buy. Nobody can order you to make a buy that you feel is unsafe, period. Mm -hmm. And that stands yeah. up all the way up to the chief of the department. They will say, uh-uh, we don't do that. You got your feeling about this case, especially because you're putting your life and your safety in the hands of a snitch, some knucklehead who's trying to work off his own case who may or may not care about right. whether you live or die. Right. Uh, and these people are, you know, users and, and oh, the you deal with the dregs. You're, you're in the sewer of society. Who do you trust? Yep. You got to trust yourself. Well, and it's Hey, folks, Dan from Gold Shields here, sharing a word about Fairline Defense. You know, in this unpredictable world, feeling secure is priceless. And with my Fairline subscription, that's exactly how I feel, secure. Fairline Defense provides comprehensive coverage and legal backing for all self-defense situations, offering peace of mind in those tough split-second moments. They've got my back, and they can have yours, too. But what truly sets Fairline Defense apart? They're the only system out there for armed professionals on and off-duty, we're talking security guards, bail enforcement officers, correctional staff, and many more, finally getting the protection they deserve with unlimited criminal defense to protect your freedom and interests during a criminal prosecution, up to $1.5 million in civil defense expenses and attorney's fees to ensure robust legal representation, 24-7 
Critical response team ready to assist you promptly in times of crisis. $1,000 a day per diem for lost wages resulting from court appearances. 100% no payback if you lose, ensuring peace of mind throughout the legal process. So folks, don't wait for trouble to find you. Get ahead with Fairline Defense, your shield in the face of uncertainty. Visit FairlineDefense.com today and let them know Gold Shield sent you. Just talking to you, Mac, a story is when one time I was buying, it's this white college kid who's just making a really bad decision about a way to make quick money. He had figured out he'd made some money selling weed. So he was trying to step up his game because he heard that he could make a lot more money off selling cocaine. And he wasn't messing with crack. He, I don't remember where his source came from at this point. But in Florida, we had t- uh, minimum mandatory um, prison sentences. I don't know if they still do. And I'm not saying I necessarily agree with the the concept of minimum mandatory, but um, that's another episode. But um, if you sell, you know, a certain amount, it becomes a felony. If you sell that with a firearm, you have increased 10 years in Florida at the time. So I bought, I think this was my second buy from him. And he had a gun in the back of his pants. And so, you know, enhanced penalty and you're screwed and you're, you know, you're attending the University of Florida. You're going to get kicked out and you'll never be able to get in again. And you're going to, you know, your the rest of your trajectory of life is going to be significantly altered by what you're doing. And because this is not your just regular old drug dealer. Well, I get a call from the snitch who introduced me to him. This is so I don't remember how far in narcotics I was, but at the time, my real name was listed in the phone book. It's these things. To explain to the people out there, there used to be these books and it would have their address on it too. So my name, Bridget Baragona, had my address and my phone number in the phone book. Well, somehow I did use a fake name. I don't remember what it was. And I had a fake ID issued by the state of Florida. But somehow I found out my real name, looked me up. The snitch called me and said, he went to your house and I lived out in the country. And I said, what do you mean? He went to my house. He goes, no, he figured out who you are, where you live. And he went to your house and was going to knock on your door. I called my sergeant and I said, so and I think I'd like just gotten back from vacation or something. And I was like, Sarge, this is what's happening. And so the next day we called the registrar's office, found out his school schedule and found out where he was going to be. So, and so me and five, five and my, former University of Florida football player, Sergeant, who I think he was at least 6'3". And then who we called, another guy called Big O, who is not small, <laughs> um, standing on the other side of me. He, he walks, this guy, his, his name was Ryan. I don't remember his last name, so it doesn't matter. You can't find him anyway. Um, actually, I do remember his last name. It's not important. He walks out of class, sees me, looks up to my Sergeant, looks up to Big O, and he just goes like this. And so he looked <laughs> up. And we take him in and, and he didn't, I mean, it was, but that was an interesting scenario because then somebody, you know, who was willing to put a gun in the back of the pants while selling me drugs was willing to knock on my door with, or without the gun. I don't know. I, I don't know what happened or made him decide not to actually wow. do with that, but that was another <laughs> pucker moment. Um, I then made my phone number unlisted. <laughs> <laughs> Good move. But yeah, we were required back then to have a landline. I don't know about you guys, but we were yeah. required oh, to yeah. have. This is when cell phones were just starting. We right. were required to have a landline. Now they don't, of course. But, you know, of course, that was something you had to do is you, you had to get yourself unlisted. I mean, I think any cop should do that, but certainly yeah. under other ones. But talk about a rookie learning moment. Oh, man. 
That was that was a common move by us to call the phone company and say, "Take us out of the book." We can't. I don't think I told have, my dad yeah. that story at the time. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of those uh, "you're not doing that anymore" moments. Yeah. So you went from narcotics. Um, you had all these crazy experiences in narcotics, and then what made you decide that you wanted to work as a SWAT operator? Um, so those overlapped. Our team was what you call a call out team. Um, it's not full time. So it's everybody, you know, patrol guys, warrant guys, canine guys, narcotics guys. Most of the narcotics team was also on SWAT. So we would do both. We had dual hats. So, um, about the time that I got on the narcotics unit, um, a couple of guys got kicked off SWAT team. So there's a couple of openings. And as you know, I mean, those guys don't come and go quickly. So, uh, an opening doesn't always happen. So I don't know. I just thinking, I just did it. I signed up for it. And again, so I'm, I'm a year and two months out of the academy. And one of the guys that I went to the academy with, this is part of the whole SWAT story. I don't remember his name. Honestly, don't. And he called me and said, Hey, I heard you try out for, you're going to try out for SWAT team. So this is like within, for, we never talked. How did he even know I was putting my name in for SWAT? And I said, yeah, I am. And he said, do you really think that's a good idea? And I was like, um, well, thought we were friends. Um, yes, I do think it's a good idea or I wouldn't put my name on the list and talk to you later. Never. So we never talked again. Um, I just thought again, a strategic resume builder and like, wow, SWAT team. Like, could I do this? And there was just something in me. Like, I don't know if I could do it. I think I could do it. I think I, you know, I can keep up. Um, and I just did it. And so it took him, like I said, about two months to put me on the team. Because as I mentioned, my lieutenant didn't want me on the team. But my captain made him do it. So, um, but yeah, that was an interesting day, that, that tryout. Wow. And at the time, there was no, there were no females on SWAT, right? You were it. Yeah, I remember, you know, we started the tryout day before the sun came up. We lined up in front of the sheriff's office and lined, you know, two people, you know, two columns to run down. That was part of it to run down and do something. We ran, I think we ran back and we were lining up pitch black, whatever, outside the sheriff's office. And the, the, tonight, the SWAT commander at the time, and we were getting ready and he just goes, Baragona, you're making history here, girl. Let's go. And I'm like, okay, no pressure. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Like we haven't even started yet. And like, I don't, I don't know what this is. I didn't really know. Like I knew I could run. I knew I could, you know, it's running, rappelling, sh- running and shooting. I can, uh, th- the whole obstacle course thing where you go through the whole obstacle course and then carry a 170 pound dummy back to the, the SWAT vehicle. I mean, I didn't know if I could do that. I'd never, oh, and rappelling. I had never rappelled before. <laughs> that was interesting. Um, but yeah, I, I didn't know, but I did it. And I did it just as well as anybody else trying out that day. So. I mean, the obstacle course part was obviously hard and getting a 170 pound dummy who I drug the dummies with the feet part. You can dig your fingers in to the heels, which is not what you would do to a human, but I <laughs> um, and I drug it with my fingers like this to the SWAT vehicle and then had to get it in. And I never thought I was going to be able to unfold my fingers. Like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but it was a day that I did it, you know, and I passed and I did an oral interview. And from what I heard, I did just as well as anybody else. And yet, and I eventually got on the team and it wow. was amazing. It really, it was amazing and awful. Towards the end, it was awful. 
Anything stand out uh, to you from your SWAT days? Um, standoff, hostage cases, uh, you know, felony entries, anything like that that stands out to you? Any interesting stories from that? Um, I mean, all the things. A hostage, domestic violence hostage situation where the guy was in this little apartment and they were in the bathroom. And so it became an issue of how do we maneuver in and not put ourselves in danger, get to her without putting her in more danger. And ultimately, I can't think he ended up like opening the doors. For, you know, people are just so, these criminals are so stupid. And somehow he gave us, not the guy, like I wasn't at the front. I mean, they never put me at the front. Um, but they gave, he gave himself access to the guys and they were able to snatch him out. And, you know, like Taser, I mean, I, I definitely two or three vivid scenarios where somebody would be dead if there wasn't a less lethal option, meaning they were tased instead of shot. Um, another one was, we got called out in the middle of the night for somebody that was high on meth, um, shooting a rifle out into the neighborhood. And if you don't know this already, and you guys do, that rifle rounds, not much stops a rifle round. Um, so block can, but he can, can go through some of that, to not timber, not drywall, you know, so it's like going into people's homes and that's, you know, obviously that's a significant risk to the neighborhood, but SWAT has to go in and get him. And, um, I can't, for some reason he ended up not, he stopped shooting while we got there and got set up and they got him out. But you've seen people who have been addicted, have been addicted to meth. When you're on meth, it's called the meth bugs. And so they start scratching because they think that they're getting bit everywhere. So they end up having all these little round scars like everywhere. This guy was huge, no shirt on, big belly with those meth scars all over, just little round scars all over. So, you know, sadly, you talk about crack being awful, but meth, I mean, it's just a dirty, dirty drug. Um, but, um, I mean, Lots of search warrants where we executed the search warrants. Um, this is it. Friday the 13th. I'm not making this up. We were staging to execute a search warrant. In, in Texas, which is in Gainesville, um, and it was one of our guys had done some buys in an apartment or some condo. We were staging around the corner, all in our radio zone. All of a sudden, we hear the alert go out that there's a hostage, potential hostage situation, and it's five minutes from us. So our SWAT commander comes on, you know, because it's not often SWAT's five minutes away. So our SWAT commander jumps on the radio and says, we're around the corner, we'll take it. And so we go, it ends up being just this young guy, like a, I don't know, early 20s, late teens, mentally impaired person. It wasn't really a hostage situation. They got him out, patrol took it over, it was fine. So we go back to stage. Again, alert comes out over the radio, robbery in progress at an Outback restaurant. Again, five minutes from us. On a Friday afternoon and, you know, Friday, they have happy hour and that outback steakhouse was always packed at happy hour. And we heard robbery in progress at the outback steakhouse. So we, we like haul ass to, you know, try and prevent people from getting killed. You know, you can just envision this scenario of just dead people everywhere in the outback steakhouse. We're about to make entries. For some reason, I was behind the two shield guys. And I was going to throw, you don't throw a flashbang at a bunch of people, but I, we all have flashbangs. So maybe that was going to happen. I don't know, but I'm behind them. And all of a sudden I hear on the radio, the jewelry store next to Outback. So here I am, this is like full on cartoon scenario. Me, like, whole like, stop, like, <laughs> no, like, stop. And like trying to turn them to the left to go to the 
jewelry store next door. We get in, the guy had literally just run out the back door. So it was a robbery in progress, stealing jewelry. There was like a trail of jewelry going down. We can't find him. Patrol takes over the search. We turn over the scene to them. We go back to the staging area. And then we go execute our search warrant and arrest some guys for drugs in their house. So that was a very interesting <laughs> Friday the 13th. I'm not kidding. It was Friday the 13th, um, SWAT and Narcotics Day. So Friday the 13th was, uh, it lived up to its name as a day of horror. Yes. Uh, yes. But how about this one? And this is something cops can understand. And if you can't, I'd be very surprised. Full moons. What happens when the moon is full? Crazy. Fights, <laughs> right? People just bad. Like nuts. People go nuts. Like domestics right. are worse. You know, the, the drug dealers are just more sketchy. It's really kind of a day is like, like, let's just do some paperwork today. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, yeah. There's something to it's that. Bizarre. You know, that it's why they call people lunatics. The lunar phases of the moon affect them. And it really is true. Um, it is. And I, I never thought it until I, when I was a young rookie, somebody said, oh, full moon tonight. And I was like, whatever. Well, yeah. yeah. All of a sudden, everybody's oh, yeah. a little nuttier. And it, uh, it yep. really manifests itself on the street. It really does. Wow. So Amazing. you're. You did your time in, in the SWAT unit. Um, was that your last command, your last assignment within the sheriff's office before you retired? Um, yes, before I, I left and gave them all the middle finger. Um, so, oh, okay. I I loved SWAT. Um, I just felt like not to make light of the, the, the danger and, and the power, the lethality that SWAT can bring to things, but I felt like I was getting paid to play, honestly. Um, we got to train. My sheriff was, um, our sheriff was a proponent of training and equipment. So the whole department would get regular training. But then on top of that, we would do, you know, SWAT would train every month or more. I mean, we would do a lot of training. So I, you know, I got to train all the time. We competed in, uh, SWAT Roundup International in Orlando, which is held every year in November. And when I say we, I mean, we would have a competition among our own team to see who would compete in SWAT Roundup. I made that team, which means I beat out some of my own guys. And then we would go compete at this competition. I did it two years in a row. I think it was 2001, 2002, or two and three, can't remember. Um, and we trained a lot for that as that competition team. And that was truly some of the coolest times in my life, like getting to train. And it was just awesome. Um, and the whole time I'm still, you know, I'm proving my worth as a SWAT operator. I'm proving that I can physically do the job. I'm proving that I'm really good at shooting and, um, you know, repelling and all the other things. I'm proving that I can participate in a SWAT competition where we have to carry, you know, a big heavy bag, like as whether they were rescuing someone and that I can be an integral part of a team that does that. And yet, they would never put me on an entry team. I was always the equipment girl. Like we had the, I called it the bread van where we have all the extra flashbangs and grenades and ammo and shields and whatever. I was only ever on perimeter or driving the equipment van. One time, one of my narcotics guys was also a SWAT team leader, put me on an entry team. One time I got to throw the flashbang and then just be part of the team that cleared the house, which we trained for all the time. I trained just like they did. And I found out it's actually after I left the sheriff's office. So I already knew it was bad, but I, he told me later that, um, he was verbally berated for putting me on an entry team and nobody would ever do it after that. Um, three explicit times that my lieutenant out explicitly, meaning verbatim said, the only reason you're on this team is because the captain made me put you on the team. Um, 
you know, after SWAT roundup competitions, after proving everything, and then coming back to that search warrant that I conducted, it was my buys, my search warrant. So I would get in trouble for everything. Not that I didn't make mistakes, but what I, at first I was like, you're right, I made a mistake. I, I can fix it. I'll do better tomorrow. You know, you're right. Okay, you're right. I made another mistake. You're right. I'll do better tomorrow. And I would get written up. I would get extra probation. I would get 500 mountain climbers. I would, one time they made me drive a, the, an RV that we had confiscated from somebody like two o'clock in the morning to go wash it as punishment. And the only place to do that was like, I don't know, 30 minutes away. Well, I broke a taillight because I'd never driven an RV before. And then they wrote me up in a crap for a crash for taking the RV out. <laughs> So it was just nonstop. Well, one time we were doing, you've been around long enough to remember what Columbine, that the one of the original, you know, horrible, I mean, it happens all the time now, but didn't happen all the time back then. And so we would do active shooter, like school active shooter scenarios, especially in the summer when the schools were empty. So we were doing that one day in the hood, like not a good neighborhood. I come out and my sergeant, who we did not jail, um, has, is one of the SWAT team leaders and so he had all the equipment, you know, Benelli shotgun, AR-15 rifle, like all the ammo, you know, grenades, flashbangs, all this in his car. I come out of school, his trunk is open, his window's down because he forgot to close it while we're inside training. I come out, I'm like, oh, I'm like, look around, is anybody else, does anybody else see this? Nobody said a word to him. Didn't get written up, didn't get any writing, didn't get a letter in his file. Nobody said a thing. And that ate at me and ate at me. So finally, I'd never said anything to my captain before, who's also my lieutenant in narcotics. I went to my lieutenant slash SWAT team commander and went to him and I said, look, I'm not asking for better treatment. I'm just asking for equal treatment. So this is kind of laid out the scenario. He goes, well, who was it? And I said, no, I'm not going to tell you who it was. And I didn't even give specifics of the car. I'm just saying, if I had left my car open outside Eastside High School, you would have torn me up. I said, so I'm not even saying go back and get this person in trouble. I'm just saying, just make it equal. And he said, well, don't make trouble for yourself where there's not any. And I said, well, I kind of think there is some trouble already. And he said, again, don't make trouble for yourself where there's not any. I said, don't really understand what you mean, but at least I'm speaking up for myself. Execute the search warrant I'm talking about where I put my life on the line to buy these drugs. I find out a couple weeks later after that that my SWAT commander had gone and told the entire team that I was trying to rat out one of my own teammates. And the guys that were in the entry vehicle were all calling me a snitch and a rat in the vehicle as I'm behind them driving the bread van to execute the search warrant that I got myself. Um, I walked into my captain's office that next Monday and I said, I quit. I said, take me off narcotics, take me off SWAT team today. And oh, by the way, I want day shift and I want it like yesterday. And he said, you got it. Anything you want to tell me? I said, nope, just, I want off right now. And that was crushing. Like when I found out they were calling me a rat, it was actually at a party that one of the the DAs was throwing and they invited some of us investigators to it. I found out at the party, I left the party and I was crying so hard. I could hardly drive home. I had almost pulled up. Like I, I, really, I think I pulled over and called my mom, like could hardly speak. I was crying so hard. I couldn't believe after two and a half years and SWAT roundup and chewing to them and physically capable, like all the things. And it didn't matter. I realized it didn't matter. It never would matter. And I was like, I just, I, cause I, you know, I'd been like 
six months leading up to it, I was like, I know they want me to quit. I'm not going to quit. I am not going to quit. And finally that happened. I was like, you know what? F you. I don't have to do this because my worth is not determined by you. And not that that was easy, but because it wasn't, it was crushing. I didn't know what to do with my life. I was going to be in law enforcement for the rest of my professional career. Didn't, had no idea what to do. And it took me months to figure out, like, just to get to the point where I could decide I wanted to go to law school. I did not know what to do with my life. It was, it was crushing. Um, but you know, some of the hardest lessons in life are the most valuable lessons learned. So. And you know, that, it's heartbreaking here. And I hate, you know, that you had to go through that, uh, because it's just, it's not right. I mean, obviously it's not fair, obviously. And you know what though, the one thing, and I know you believe this and understand this, all your accomplishments, your first SWAT team, you know, no one can take that from you. No one can take away the job you did, the success you had as, you know, in the sheriff's office. No one can ever take that from you. And we've all run into people like that and situations like that, not to your level, which is just terrible. Uh, but, you know, you just rattling off to us in the last, you know, 45 minutes, you know, accomplishments in your career. And you're impressive as hell. I mean, you are. And and no one can can change that. No one's going to take that from you. And hang that hang that on your wall. And, you know, that's yours and you own it. So good for you for that. Uh, then you made kind of a life-changing decision uh, in your life once that was all done. Tell us about what's going on now in Bridget's life and what you got going and uh, the decision you made. Well, like I said, I decided to go to law school and even as frustrated as I was when I left and, you know, disappointed and heartbroken and all those things, I still, like I said, I still believe in law enforcement. I, I knew that there could be a way that I could help or contribute to a law enforcement world, but I didn't know what I wanted that to look like. I knew I would never want to be a cop again, but I knew there would be a way I could like infiltrate somehow. Um, we ended up moving to Texas for my now husband, and then my husband's job took us to New York City, actually, which is, I lived in Manhattan, which is where my first two kids were born. Then we moved back to Texas. And so in the, in the, in the meantime, I'm working, I work in civil litigation. But, um, and so, but then, then I started, I did, and I had my kids, and then I got tired of traveling, and then I had another kid. And then I'm like, you know what? And then I, you know, same thing of working places. I realized along, along that time frame that, that timeline of working that the crappy supervisors aren't exclusive to law enforcement. There are crappy supervisors everywhere. And I am just always, I, I think I have, I do believe I have like an entrepreneurial spirit, meaning um, I believe I can do this. I, I want to work for myself. It's not easy, but obviously throughout my story, I don't choose easy. Um, and about four years ago, I decided that and it was actually the summer before um, the, all the George Floyd stuff happened. Um, I was like, and I quit the law firm I was working for. I was like, this is it. I was like, life is too short. I, I don't, I hate, hated my job as an attorney doing it the way I was doing it. And just talking with my husband about it. And finally he's like, just quit. And at first I was like, hold on a second, quit. Like, I mean, I'm getting a paycheck. What are you talking about? What is this quit stuff that you're talking about? Plus I'm not a quitter. Except I did quit law enforcement. Anyway, um, so, and then I started thinking about it. I was like, well, I can do this. Cause I, in two ways, one is I really believe strongly in doing something to help law enforcement and first responders focus on their wellness. And then two is 
I'm an attorney and I can help somehow. But I focused on the wellness side first, just because of the way that I live my life with exercise and nutrition and sleep and meditation and I think reading, like all the things you do to make yourself like balance out life, which helps me. It, all people help, it would help you as a cop. It helps you as a wife or husband, or it helps you as a sibling, a friend, a, a church member. It helps you in all ways when you can focus on yourself in that way. So I was developing this, which I have created. It's my other business, uh, Protective Wellness, where I have a, a wellness training program, which is designed to help you as an individual define what wellness means to you and then incorporate that in your life. But while I was trying to develop that, telling my story, people heard that I'm a lawyer and they would hear the story I just told. And they would start reaching out to me saying, hey, this is happening to me too. Can you help? And I'm like, well, yes, I can. And so then I really focused more strongly on developing Lady Law Shield, which is my law firm. And what I do is, and I specifically thinking about that, I said, I want to be the lawyer I wish I could have been for me back then, which is you don't know who to turn to. You you guys, I know, Tom and Dan, I am certain that you felt faced something at your department where you're like, I don't know who to trust. I don't know what to do. Or maybe you're involved in an internal affairs investigation where you're not allowed to talk to anybody about it anyway, except you can talk to a lawyer. And y'all's union up there is, is much different than, than the way it is in the South. Um, you know, but I had a union. I was in a union. I had a union rep. I didn't trust him. There was no way. He was one of the guys that would have just gone and spread my story. He would have just blabbed and gossiped about me. So I didn't say anything. I had nobody to turn to. Now, that's what I do. I am the person that you can turn to. I am the person who's been through it, completely understands what it feels like to be railroaded and thrown under the bus. And that, and all I think, I think cops just want, and first responders, firefighters, everybody, you just want answers. This is what's happening to me. What do I do? I need to be able to tell my story to somebody I can trust who's going to not bullshit me in any way and, and not take all my money because who has extra money? So I offer this, this entry level, like, tell me your story and I will give you my opinion of what you need to do. And I will, t- and I will give you an action, like, a, like action items. And I, cause I, and I could make a lot more money saying, sure, give me your case. Let's go file lawsuits. Give me $5,000. Give me $10,000. I, that's not how I do it. Yes. A lot of these cases could go to trial, but I think that it starts with having somebody that can give you, tell you what to do, say, yeah, and validate what you're feeling. I mean, I, I did a podcast interview the day, well, Enduring the Badge with Jerry London. Jerry and I were talking about he's a firefighter for over 30 years, you know, putting his life on the line all the time, just like law enforcement does. And I don't want to, I, I think I could say this about Jerry. It's like he started telling me some of the stuff he'd recently been through and he was getting emotional about it. You know, like 30 year veteran becoming emotional about injustices he's faking with facing within his department, which is just so heartbreaking to me. This job crushes you no matter what. And you have to actively try and undo that crushing. It's not fair that it also comes from your department. And I want people to have the answers and the support and the validation. So many of my clients, even after they hire me, like Bridget, did I make this up? Am I overreacting? Should I not be doing anything about this? And I'm, I'm like, I'm your bulldog. I'm like, hell no, you're not making this up. Like, I'm telling you my story. Does it make you mad when you hear my story? Yes. And like, you want to do something about it. And I, that's, that is what, like, I feel like I can say, I started this about two years ago, but I'll just say I'm 48 years old now and I'm finally doing what I'm supposed to do in my life professionally, which is, to help law enforcement and first responders be able to fight back and do something when their own department is not is doing what they shouldn't be doing. Mm-hmm. 
Wow. That, that is so inspirational. Um, and it comes from a place of personal experience as opposed to just having this, uh, you know, altruistic ideal. I want to help people. Well, you've been through the meat grinder. You know what it's like. And I'm sorry you had to go through that. But you're not alone, as you know. There are so many people in every industry who are terrible leaders. And, you know, being a leader is something you have to study and learn and adapt to. It's not something we're naturally born leaders. I don't believe in that because there's so much involved in leading people the right way so that they can be productive, they can be, you know, healthy, have work-life balance, enjoy what they do, learn, grow in their careers. And when you're a leader, you're entrusted with that person's development. You're entrusted with so much about that person's life. And if you don't take it seriously, you can have situations like this become part of the norm. And the culture in many departments across America has always been, you know, suck it up, buttercup, just do it. Do what you're told. That's it. Well, to a certain extent, yeah, there's a time and place for that. When you're on the street in the middle of a chaotic situation, the boss says, do this, you do it right? When it comes to something different where you need a little bit of human understanding and you need to be heard, you know, people work best when they feel they are heard, understood, and supported. And when they're not, they shut down. They shut down, they detach. And the whole, you know, thing you went through, the sexist thing you went through and and being, you know, treated like a second-class citizen within the SWAT unit, that's horrible to hear. And I'm so sorry, again, I'm so sorry you went through that. But it's amazing that you have turned your disappointment, pain, frustration, um, bitterness, and everything that's all natural that would come with that to, into something positive. Put that energy into law school. Now put that energy into defending your clients because departments need departments and municipalities need to be put on notice. You cannot treat people like garbage. You just can't. You just can't no, do it. And, you know, I say, yeah, it was crappy that that all happened. And certainly... It, it, I've described it didn't like it at the time, but I don't regret that happened because I feel like I have the unique skill set in many ways to help in the way that I do now. I, that I've gotten to the point that I am now where I'm, I'm willing to create a law firm that's not the normal law firm. I mean, there are even lawyers out there that would say, well, why are you doing that? You can make a whole lot more money doing this. Yes. Starting out, I could have had my very steady, very comfortable salary and just kept going, but I'm obviously not just the status quo person. So, um, yeah, I don't regret that. And this, and, and because I really love what I'm able to do now. Um, and I can say, I mean, I say all the time, I think that all humans should talk to a therapist every once in a while. I do it every, still regularly every two to four weeks. And it's through, and that's part of a, a healthy wellness routine is understand there's no shame. There's no weakness in that. And especially for law enforcement to be able to let things go. Because your wife or your spouse or your friend or your whatever can't always be your your counselor or your therapist. You need to be able to let things go and talk things through in a different way. But certainly it's it's having a conversation with my therapist of the angst that I was holding on to from all of that to be able to let go of it, of the negativity from it and turn it into what I wanted it to be. And I do think there's an an, an an eight part of that, meaning a natural part of that for me, where like, I just refuse. I mean, I have a t t tattoo of a sunrise on my wrist because I believe tomorrow's a new day. Tomorrow represents possibility. You can always like, go to sleep and we'll have fresh eyes on it tomorrow. So I believe in not harboring on the negative. I call it like, I don't like to be Debbie Downer. I like to be positive Polly. And yet sometimes <laughs> you just need to be Debbie Downer and be pissed and talk through something. Um, but certainly I'd realize I hung on to a story about that for a long time. 
the SWAT thing, the story I was telling myself, the telling myself, I didn't talk to any of the guys that I worked with for almost 15 years. I didn't want to. I was mad at them. Nobody ever stood up for me. And it took me a long time and I lost a lot of years. I could have, and cause that wasn't all their fault. I mean, the guy that's running the, or actually just turned over SWAT command to somebody else, but the guy that was SWAT commander, he and I started by the same time. And, you know, I lost a lot of years where we could have kept in touch or maybe I could have helped him somehow or, um, you know, so that's where, when I tell people, if you're facing something like this at your department, don't just, you know, stuff it down in there with all the other crap that's happened to you at work. Because you, if you don't deal with it somehow, it will manifest somehow. Physically, physical ailments. We all know, have heard of way too many stories or know people personally when they retire from law enforcement or first responders and they die. Like way too many stories where, you know, massive heart attack three months after you're 30 years in law enforcement. Well, that sucks. Like you should have spent the next 30 years of your life living, the, you know, living it up. And so now when I say Lee will help as a wellness tool, um, coming back to, I said, so I started this right before the George Floyd, George Floyd thing happened. And I was mad for two weeks at how all of a sudden everybody on the planet, except law enforcement assumed all cops were dirty. Like that's crap. You know, you and I both know that's the, anybody, the, the wrongdoers are vast minority of the people we work with. And we're the people who run to the bullets rather than away from the bullets. And we're not the ones who go around beating up innocent people. And so after about two weeks of being mad, my husband's like, you got to stop looking at social media. I'm like, I can't. It's just making me so mad. And then I stop. <laughs> and then just like everything, there's opportunity that comes out of the crap. And the opportunity was I can help somehow. How can I help? Well, if you're facing problems like a legal problem, it is all consuming. If you're all consumed about something, then you're not able to really focus and react on the job the way that you should or could. And so I can help you eliminate that worry so that you can focus on other aspects of your life, including not be as reactive. We all know that when you're in a bad mood or you fight with your wife or whatever, you go out and you're just a little bit quicker to be mad on the job. Well, that's why what I do, you know, helping people in this way, I really, it wraps into the wellness stuff, which is so important to me is that because I can help you let that go. I can help you find peace in that. I can help you try and, and move on so that you can focus on your life and your job in, in the healthiest way possible. Uh, and that, and I do believe it's possible. I don't mean it's easy. It's not always easy. Just like true leadership is not the easy route, but it's possible. Unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, you're, yeah. Powerful, you know powerful story. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're something else. And, uh, you know, whether you want to believe this or not, you're a role model and you should be. And your name needs to be out there even more because of what you did and what you're doing. Uh, I think the phrase is, you know, sometimes the path forward is the most tortured. Uh, and you live that and you took that and you, you turned it into a positive, not even for you. You, you turned it to a positive for others, which makes you even better <laughs> than, yeah, than yeah. Uh, you know, just taking care of yourself on another level or a new job. You turned it and gave back to a situation you knew needed help. And man, you're, you're something. Uh, what a great show. What a great person you are. Interview, everything. Uh, 
My proud, to, proud to know you. Proud to know you, Bridget. Thank well, you. Thank you. I'm proud to know you guys too. I mean, the work that you're doing here is so important. I think ultimately, if we can get stories out, and if anything that we do together or alone helps save one person, then we've all succeeded. So we say it all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it's in the DNA. The, those of us who are attracted to law enforcement careers are service oriented people. And uh, not everybody, but most of us are. If you went into it for the right reasons, you are. And you continue to serve. And you continue to serve in a way that is so important and so needed. And so thank you for, for dedicating your life to that service to others. And I'm sure there are a lot of clients, uh, past, present, and future, who have and will benefit off your dedication, your commitment, and your understanding of what they're going through. So thank you for that. Um, well, fantastic. Welcome. And thanks for having me on the show to talk about it. Yes, her name and is Bridget Truxillo, Lady Law Shield, right? And uh, Tom, go ahead, please. No, just uh, I want you to take this next uh, few minutes before we're uh, before we wrap and tell everyone how they can get in touch with you, what websites, what they can do, what the websites show. You know, who should, all that. who should Let's get in it. touch with you? Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Let's hear it. Well, anybody who, if anything I said re resonates with you at all, then you've way past time of needing to talk to me. We all take it way too long before you even ever get think about, well, maybe this is real. Maybe I should do something. More than likely, yes, you should do something. So I actually offer a free 15-minute phone call. You just go to my website, ladylawshield.com, and there's a, one of the first things you see is a button to book a call. And you and I will have a quick conversation to talk about the, the basics of what's happening. The majority of time, I will say, yes, I think you should do something. Here's the next steps of how to work with me. Every once in a while, I'll say, no, you know, having a shitty supervisor isn't illegal, unfortunately. But, you know, most of the time it's like, yes, I think there's something we should do. And then I do offer, like I said, that for that initial um, option of working with me is for me to just send me everything. I give you instructions on what to review. You upload it. I have it. I do this nationwide because I'm not representing you in a lawsuit, which I, because I don't believe that's the, that's not the first step. It's not the first step for many reasons, but um you know, you need to look at it. I can tell you, because like I said, I do believe because I was there. The first step is what can I do? Like, you're just so frustrated. And then I like, I give you the plan and I validate what you're feeling. And I say, here's what you need to do. And then there are other steps, which sometimes people do hire me for. I am licensed in four states, including New York, um, where I can start to take action for you. But also, Let's say you want, you end up needing to file an EEOC claim for harassment, discrimination or whatever. That's a federal, um, uh, process. So any attorney in this country can help you with that. And you might, you can do, you can even do it on your own. I don't always recommend that you do that, especially cops think they know everything, but you don't know the law in this way. So I am also, I also have people reach out to me and say, well, I kind of made a mess of this thing. So can you help me fix it? And I, well, I can try. Um, so it is book a call with me, but then, you know, sometimes it's like, and I'm just having my, well, I don't know when this will come out, but I'm getting ready to change my homepage where it's like, need help now? Click here to book a 15 minute call. Want just some special little legal tips from me? Click here to book up, book for our, our sign up for my email. So that would be two ways to, to stay in contact with me or two ways would be to get my email and I'm on Instagram and LinkedIn. Um, I have videos on YouTube. Um, I post a lot of shorts on just little snippets of things to understand. One of the things I do help people with is about 50% of my practices, officers that are put on the Brady Giglio list when they shouldn't be. I won't spend too much time talking about it. It's basically a career killing move. 
way too many times prosecutors put officers on this list for the wrong reasons, and it's really hard to get off. And I help you come up with a plan to do that, to get your name off that list so that you can keep being a cop. So um, but that's all on my website. If you need me, book a call. Um, obviously, if you've listened to me this long, you know that I'm passionate about wanting to help. Fantastic. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Bridget. We wish you nothing but the best in your future endeavors, and uh, we know that you're going to be a superstar. We can't wait to have you back at some point to talk more with you. I'd love to. You're a very, very compelling speaker about your life, your career, your experiences, and your insights, and I think uh, think our audience really enjoyed this show today, so thank you so much for that. Yeah, you're so welcome, and thank you guys for what you're doing, and keep on doing it. Thank you so much, and all uh, Bridget's information is going to be on our posts on our website. Uh, our website's going to get updated uh, shortly with some new information from some guests that we've had, and Bridget's going to certainly be one of them. LadyLawShield.com. All right, make sure you go on that. Hit her up. She's going to help you. And uh, once again, Dan, we <laughs> again, we sound like a broken record with the amazing guests that we have, but very, Bridget very is a superstar powerful, successful role model woman that we're proud to know. And uh, Bridget, you know, in the NYPD world, now you're stuck with us. You know, we That's ain't going it. anywhere. You're just part of our world. You're part of our life. And uh, get, get used, used to, to us. Yeah. <laughs> Patrick, you just hard. You can't shake it. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> we hope so, it's in a good uh, way. We hope it's in a good way. I like to stay in contact. I, no, um, relationships are important to me, I think. And, and, for all people. So you guys aren't going to get rid of me anytime soon either. So good. Awesome. Don't even try. Yeah. <laughs> so everyone out there, as always, uh, a little extra prayer for law enforcement officers, first responders out there. They need our prayers. They need our support. The military. Need people like Bridget Trixillo out there helping out every way that she can. And we need others to jump on board and, and assist in their lives because they need it. Uh, we're not machines. We're not robots. We have feelings. We have emotions. And those need uh, assistance sometimes. So give a little extra prayer. Give a wave on the street when you see a cop in a, in a car uh, walking around and uh, a big fist bump when you see him in the store. All right. And say thank you. It means the world to them. So again, for an amazing, powerful guest, Bridget Trixillo, My partner, Dan Murphy, this is Tom Smith from Gold Shields, and everyone out there, please stay safe, and thanks again.